Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Luke, a consultant in emergency medicine and author of A Life in Trauma, Memoirs of an Emergency Physician, published by Gill Books in Dublin. And this has been my episode for Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. And sometimes you've got to get angry. And sometimes the sight of an elderly woman on a trolley in a, in a, in a, in a dusty, dark, noisy corner by a door in a, in a stinking, smelly, hectic emergency department makes me very, very angry. And I, I try to harness that anger to, to make a difference. And, you know, that's probably why I've, I've, I've reached for the pen as often as I've done in terms of highlighting what's going on in our emergency departments. Because... Quite honestly, I often feel that if I didn't, politicians would be infinitely happier. Managers certainly would be infinitely happier if there was no noise coming from the emergency department and it just stayed like some kind of pressure cooker. Welcome aboard. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation we have with a man who's given over 35 years to the front line. Dr. Chris Luke is on the show, and we're absolutely delighted for you to hear his insights, his stories, and do check out his new book, A Life in Trauma, which is out now in association with Gill Books. And just before we dive in, quick shout out to the sponsor of the show, Hawara, a performance well-being growth partner. You can check them out at hawaralife.com. That's H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Dr. Chris Luke, emergency physician and author of A Life in Trauma, Memoirs of an Emergency Physician. Dr. Chris Luke qualified in 1982 at University College Dublin as has been an emergency physician for over 35 years, serving others. He's worked in frontline medicine in Ireland, the UK and Australia, and has been a consultant in emergency medicine in Cork for over 20 years. Today we speak about why Chris studied medicine, his mother as a role model, and his legacy in Ireland. Chris talks about the perils and potential of a well-functioning A&E, current pressures in healthcare systems, and the compassion equation, empathy plus action. We unpack the meaning behind him describing himself as a slightly militant altruist, burnout, and performing under pressure in primary care and hospital settings. It was fascinating to hear from a doctor who has displayed resilience at the front line, witnessed so much trauma and distress, and is now sharing his story with us and you. Dr. Chris Luke, thank you very much for spending some time with us this morning. We're um, really looking forward to having a conversation and learning an awful lot about your story and, and your lessons. So how is life for you these days? Life is good, David. Thank you. Um, I'm getting busier and busier. I'm basically trying to reboot my, my career. I, I suppose I semi-retired from frontline practice a couple of years ago uh, in, because of a, a, an injury to my neck and uh, nerve damage to my, my, my hand. I, I have difficulty uh, with my right hand. I can type, but I can't really write. And I, I you know, have very little strength. So that's difficult for an emergency physician because you're so often asked to, to jump onto chests or to tug stuck uh, dislocated shoulders and all that kind of stuff you'll be, you'll be very familiar with. So I've sort of semi-retired. I went back for the for COVID, but I'm I'm now again off, and I'm 
mainly lecturing and, and writing uh, and teaching. And I've, I've started a column at the Irish Medical Times. So I, I'm, I'm kept going. I, I'm doing a little bit of work with the HSE here, the health service. And I do a tiny bit of clinical practice. Uh, I parked that for COVID, but um, no, I'm, 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 I'm getting busier and busier. And with all those different streams, Chris, what do you enjoy the most? Which one really stands out to you? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Uh, I, I have to say I, I, I enjoy lecturing and teaching the most. That that really does fire me up, I, I, particularly in, in, in person. Uh, unfortunately, telemedicine or lecturing online can be a little bit of a penitential exercise, as we've all realized. It's, it's, on the one hand, it's an enormous advantage not to have to travel. I mean, I, I frequently do, you know, big four or five hour long Zoom meetings, which are, which are fine. And they're, it's much better than having to travel by train or, or, or car to, to Dublin, for instance. But nonetheless, um, trying to lecture online for half an hour with, with constant breakdowns and connection and so forth can be a real penitential exercise. So I'm looking forward to getting back to uh, lecturing in person over the next uh, few weeks. And I've got a few things lined up, you know, for, for March uh, and, and thereafter. You returned to the front line for the pandemic. What, what capacity did you return in and what was that like? Well, I went back, Kieran, as a, as, a, as a consultant to my old department at the Mercy, which is, um, you know, a big, busy inner city uh, emergency department in the, in, the, in the heart of Cork. Uh, you know, probably 150 odd patients a day would be pretty standard, 100, oh. 150 or thereabouts, compared with CUH, Cork University Hospital, which is... A suburban department it's the hub department it's it's, it's a bigger department a, a mile or so away in in the suburbs in cork city and they would probably see around about 200 a day so you know both departments are very very busy now having said that um as you can imagine there was a huge um drop off in the numbers of patients attending the emergency departments mm-hmm. in both the mercy and cuh and in fact all around the country uh, during the, the the first few weeks of the pandemic in in march 2020 and for really for a few weeks afterwards it, it gradually built up again but certainly there was there was intense anxiety which kept people away uh, and it was intense anxiety on the part of the, of the staff obviously in apprehension uh, as they learned to don the PPE kit and uh, you know establish all these new infection control regimes and pathways and all sorts so it was it was really really challenging for, for the staff I enjoyed being back. I must say, it was it was a joy to be to be welcomed back, and I mean, I got the heartiest and, and friendliest of welcome, which was mm-hmm. really a really a boost to my morale. I have to say, because I had to leave relatively suddenly uh, when I was signed off with my my neck injury. Um, so it was great to get back. Um, it was busy. It was challenging, but I'm you know very proud of the staff. Uh, they 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 cope very very well. And one of the joys of working in a relatively smaller hospital like the Mercy is that the, 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 the camaraderie uh, and the ambience tend to be tend to be one of those great sense of, of you know esprit de corps great great team spirit and you know the very a very warm sort of institution with the pandemic and that exact reason that people weren't attending a and e and dr tony hulan mentioned he went in for a routine appointment and it was quite empty so we actually encouraged people to continue to go in for cardiac for oncology for neuro for all of these appointments is there going to be a deferred cost to the healthcare system or to individuals who didn't attend for that maybe emergency in a timely manner that down the line we're going to have to maybe try and pick up from almost as a healthcare, as a society? Yeah, without a doubt, sadly. Uh, I mean, if you look 
at all the health systems around these islands, be it Scotland or, or Wales or Northern Ireland or England, you'll see reports uh, coming in the whole time of record-breaking numbers of people attending emergency departments, for example, in Belfast. Yesterday, there was a 16-year high at Cork University Hospital in oh, wow. terms of um, trolley numbers and people waiting in ambulances for up to, up to 10 hours before they were taken out of the ambulance and brought into the busy department. Okay. Uh, and, you, you know, in recent months, they've had to deploy the military in both Wales and Scotland it, it, because of the, the stretched ambulance service. So I, I read a report there that the Royal Victoria in Belfast, the city centre department there, had seen something like 500 patients coming to its emergency department in just one day. And in fact, they were so stretched that they had to declare a major incident. So I'm afraid there's no doubt in my mind that we are going to see extraordinary numbers. And that, you know, I, I remind uh, remind myself and some people who won't be aware of this, but in just in January uh, of 2020, there were reports in the media about uh, children having to be treated on the floor in CUH's emergency department. Such was the overcrowding then. So fast forward two years we have uh, the prospect, I'm afraid, of, of an even more stretched front line, uh, 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 even, even more congested emergency departments. And I hope that will give um, people some, some incentive at, at, in terms of the powers that be, in terms of the administration, in terms of the government, uh, of, of in, inventing and thinking up of alternative pathways. And for Chris, for people working in those environments, I mean, there's, there's a very preeminent psychologist who's worked for the All Blacks and teams in the States called Dr. Kerry Evans. And he would talk about when you're in an environment and you have to perform under pressure, when there's a lot of stress, that you can keep a redhead or a blue head. And you want to keep the blue head. You want to stay calm and controlled and focused so you can do your best work. But what's it like when the system's really being stretched like that? What would be the suggestion to give to those people currently in those hospitals? I mean, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating question, David, and I think it, it's right at the heart of the very survival of um, the emergency healthcare system throughout these islands, and to some extent in, in North America and Australia and in the other English-speaking uh, countries where they tend to have this uh, similar, originally American-style emergency department, and I think it's important for your listeners to appreciate that with that model of emergency care, the emergency department increasingly is now the, the, the main portal of access for everybody to the public health system, which means that instead of just having emergencies, in other words, unforeseen crises and mishaps and misadventures, you've also got people who are, for example, homeless, people who are desperate because they've been on a waiting list for a, a knee or a hip uh, joint problem for two years, um, or they, they, they've got other issues, you know, skin diseases that they, they can't afford or they can't wait to see. Uh, skin specialists. And then, of course, as we all know, in this country and in the UK, in the NHS, there is the imminent prospect of an enormous number of general practitioners retiring uh, in, in the coming uh, two to three years, which is going to add to the pressure on primary care. And, you know, you'll often hear in conversation nowadays in Ireland and in London, because I, 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 I pop back and forth to London and to, to talk, to see friends, and they often talk about how impossible it is now to register with an old-fashioned GP and how so many of them, both, and of course this applies in Dublin as well, how, ma how so many people are now having to go to out-of-hour services or to, you know, to many of the, the, the I suppose, the, the private uh, facilities that are now beginning to, to proliferate. 
And then just speaking to that, for people who are listening to the show who maybe don't have leverage in government buildings or in places that places of power, what can we do to try? Because when you hear the stories about a child being treated on the floor, you hear about 10 hours waiting in an ambulance. It evokes emotions for myself and anyway, you almost of guilt, maybe of maybe I could do more to help this out. I have worked in a and I have worked in ICU, but what can I do now to help out to improve the healthcare system? Is there anything we can do as a population to influence that change for the primary care centers or the healthcare system as a whole? Yeah, well, I, I, my, my, I suppose my, my prescription has been very, very simple in the last couple of years, and it, it, it's, it's political. And I, I keep saying that the next time, the next general election, the next local election, ask the person at your front doorstep canvassing for your vote. Ask them when was the last time they visited your local emergency department. Because I think that may help to bump up emergency department overcrowding and, and dysfunction to the top of the political agenda where it needs to be because it's very important in terms of putting this into perspective a quarter of the entire population in fact perhaps a third in, in England attend the emergency department every year and, and it's, it's it's a similar number in Australia and in North America vast amounts of the population go to the emergency department of their hospital every year so you know, if the emergency department system isn't functioning, you know, you're, the, the electorate is seeing that real time and is experiencing the, the, the associated misery and, and dysfunction for themselves. So I'd say to politicians, please don't drop the ball. Please don't shift your focus uh, just because of the pandemic winding down. Please bear in mind that the, the, the main legacy in, of the pandemic is one of the main legacies anyway, is going to be in our emergency department systems. And um, it's vital that everybody who, who needs to focuses on the, on the overcrowding there and keeps asking themselves day after day after, how can I help? And that means that on the wards of every hospital, people have to be very, very vigilant and have to realise that a patient who is waiting for hours in an ambulance outside the emergency department is waiting for a patient with, in the corridor of the department to get up to that ward. So the wards are absolutely synergistic, symbiotic. Their management is reflected in the overcrowding in the emergency department. So the emergency department exit is entirely dependent on beds being available up in the wards. And then in turn, that means that there need to be nursing home facilities, step-down facilities, and, and so on. So, so there's a, a chain, a circular chain that goes from the elderly person falling in their house the ambulance being called, the the ambulance, you know, discharging or you know de decanting the patient into the emergency department, waiting in a corridor, getting up to a bed, having surgery for the hip or the shoulder, getting back out to physiotherapy or rehab in a step down facility, and back into the community. That's a circle that has to keep moving, and that each each element, each part of that chain has to be observed and, and we have to keep an eye on all all aspects because the overcrowding in the emergency department is not a reflection of the efficiency or expertise or policies within the emergency department by and large it's to do with exit block in other words they, they, they we can't in the emergency department get access to beds on the wards or to step down facilities in in in, in, a, in a timely manner the way we should chris you mentioned a word that we, we've heard on this podcast quite a lot over the last couple of years, and you touched on legacy. And we're here looking through a life in trauma, your book, and here was a man who won an exceptional contribution to Emergency Medicine Award in Cork in 2018. So you have distilled a legacy here in our country. 
would love to understand why was this the profession you went into? Because you're sharing your your story and your lessons in a book that so much more so that of the medical community can learn from. But where did it start for you? Well, I suppose, like so many people, um, it began with what is now known in public health uh, practices, an adverse childhood experience uh, or ACE. And, you know, thinking about this is one of the ways it's described as trauma informed thinking about childhood. And it's looking at the kind of trauma this is the psychological trauma as opposed to the, the physical trauma, the psychological trauma that affects a, a very great number of human beings in their first 10 years or so of life, uh, you know, when their brains are developing, when their, their emotional uh, homeostasis systems are, are evolving, when their socialization is evolving. In, in my case, um, my, my, my mother was a single unmarried woman in the 1950s in Ireland. Uh, I don't need to, to, to explain how tricky that was. I ended up in an orphanage in, in Stillorgan for about six or seven years. It's, 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 a, it's a little bit vague because my mother, bless her, uh, really couldn't bring herself to talk about that period in our lives. She uh, rescued me from the orphanage. I, I, I ended up in a, in, a, in a very good school, I suppose, in, 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 in Dublin. And through a, a mixture of luck and the love of a, a network of my mother's friends, a network of mothers who minded me while my mother went back to work. And, you know, and I, that meant I, I grew up and I socialized in, in a, a series of other families. And that was hugely uh, advantageous to a, a single sort of uh, orphanage boy. Uh, growing up in Dublin in the, in the 60s and, and 70s. In addition to that, my mother was quite elderly when she had me. She was 40, which was regarded as, a, as very elderly in, in the 1950s, when most mothers would have been in their early 20s or late teens having, having their first child. But her mother had grown up in the tenements, and I suppose as a result of that, I, tend, I inherited the, the value system that applied to Dublin in, in, in a the inner city, the, the tenements, uh, the, the, the inner suburbs like Renala, where my mother actually grew up. I inherited her value system. So she'd grown up, and her mother particularly, her mother had grown up in, in terrible poverty at the turn of the century when she lived in the slums in, in Gardner Street. My mother grew up in during a period of austerity during the so-called emergency, the, you know, the Second World War in Dublin, when there was, there was, there was no luxuries. Uh, it was very hard to get the basic staples of life. Uh, even in the 40s. So my mother grew up in a period of austerity, but nonetheless, uh, she had a very, very um, intense social conscience, uh, a very deep sense of social justice. And I suppose the fact that I did quite well academically in school, uh, and I, I mean, the highlight, I suppose, of my academic life was I, 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 got, I was school captain. I went from orphanage boy to, to head boy in, in the school in Dublin. And, and I, I also got the gold medal there. So at, at one small point in my turbulent teens, even though I, I, I did go slightly off the rails as a teenager, I, I, I managed to cleave to the railway enough to, 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 to do reasonably well in the leaving search. <laughs> and as a result uh-huh. of that, I, I decided to do medicine. And I suppose I decided to do medicine uh, and combine it with the sort of so- sense of social justice and the sort of old-fashioned decency that my mother had instilled in me. Uh, and I also brought, I suppose, uh, a sort of journalistic background because my mother and father and grandfather and, and uncle were all, were all journalists. So I, I grew up in that milieu as well. And I suppose I brought both the, 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 the social justice thing and the journalistic thing to my, to my practice. 
And then speaking back to the austerity, we're probably living in a bit more time of abundance. How has the value system that you learned in the Dublin tenements in that environment, how has that affected your role as being a father and what you'd like your, your daughters and your children to have as a value system of their own? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating question, Kieran. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, I have a medical daughter. Uh, my, my firstborn, Kira, is, is, is a doctor. Um, and interestingly, she stayed to work at the front line. She went into emergency medicine initially. She's now um, moved on up into anesthesia with a view to doing intensive care. But she's interesting, just, just, she has just been working in the Rotunda Hospital where my, my own mother was born a hundred years previously. So uh, there's a lovely circularity there. And my, I, I like to think my daughter has a, a, a similar sort of um, decency and sense of social values. Uh, and um, so, so, you know, and, and she, it, it, I, I gather she's, she's a lovely and, 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 and very effective uh, and kindly young doctor who gets a lot of, you know, wonderful feedback, which is a great joy to me because for me, values rather than material goods, material wealth, are, are, values are so much more important. And of course, the most important thing of all, whether it's in the hospital emergency department, whether it's in terms of the service we provide to our, our patients, our, 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 our people, our citizens, or ourselves as professionals, you know, it's, it's all about relationships, whether it's a, a one-off relationship with someone who's an elderly party who's come to, to grief or a homeless person or someone having, having falling off, a, falling off a, a third, you know, story piece of scaffolding. Uh, it may only be a, a once-off relationship and a brief one, but nonetheless, uh, the same values apply. I mean, the, the values of compassion and concern, uh, you know, with applied empathy. You know, the, I talk about what I call the compassion equation in the emergency department, which is empathy plus action. And, and I, I like to think that that's, that's basically what defines good emergency care in, in mixing social justice and clinical expertise and evidence-based practice. You're both writing down that equation, us as physiotherapists, but we haven't come across that one. So we're, we're taking that one from you, Chris. Thank you. I was speaking to my wife yesterday and I said, look, I'm speaking to Dr. Chris Luke tomorrow morning. Myself and Kieran are going to have a fascinating conversation. And the question she had was, here's a man who's been around distress and, and trauma and trying circumstances for a long time, for, for longer than three decades. And the question that we're always curious about people working in those environments how do they manage? How do they cope? How can they come home and, and, and somewhat leave it behind them so that they're fresh again to go tomorrow? How have you managed to keep going for such a long period of time and performing and staying healthy for the most part? I mean, that's the $64,000 question, I suppose. Um, yeah, that is. I mean, when I was a young consultant in Liverpool in the early 90s, I used to joke that without stress, my life had no meaning. Oh, how we laughed. Then I, as, a, as, I, as life went on, I used to say, it, I, I felt a bit like the, the colonel in the army who'd been sent to the Lebanon in the 1960s or 70s as a peacekeeping mm. uh, you know, contingent, but who had been forgotten by HQ and, and, and left uh, at the front line for 20, 30 years. To be absolutely honest with you guys, um, I was left at the front line for probably a bit too long. And I, I, I was... It, it was very corrosive and I, I, I did end up being considerably burnt out. And if I have any regrets, and I'm, I'm someone who does believe in regrets and the importance of regret, no, not, not terrible regrets, but like, you know, objective regrets. 
I would regret the way that affected my relationship, my relationships with my own family, my wife, my four children, my colleagues, my friends, friends from school. I mean, I'm, I'm someone I hope you'll appreciate who absolutely cherishes or, or treasures friendship. For me, from, since I was a young boy, a young orphanage boy, I've absolutely treasured friendship. And the only thing really that caused systemic damage and, you know, harm to my friendships over the last five, six decades was the kind of burnout I experienced. And as you will be well aware, burnout is an occupational uh, disease or dis-ease. It's caused by working, you know, in in a battlefield situation. It's caused by working in a a toxic factory. It's caused by, by working in a department where there isn't enough space to sit somebody down to examine them, never mind privacy, dignity, peace and quiet and and so on. So I, I, I was very corroded. I, I talk about a sort of spiritual anemia, you know, where the, 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 the metaphorical hemoglobin drops and the metaphorical oxygen carrying capacity to the mind, the soul, the spirit is reduced. And you just basically, you really do muddle along. You stumble forward the whole time. But the price is that you lose your appetite for joy and that particularly means the joy of friendship. You, lo- you you forget how important it is to work on friendships and how friendship maintenance is absolutely vital. You have to maintain friendship the way you maintain anything else. You know, and of course there are other uh, ancillary issues. You know, you lose interest in reading, watching TV, what going to the movies, getting out, playing football, playing tennis, all the things that sustained you in your teens and 20s and 30s, they fall away. And you begin to become a bit reclusive and hermetic. And I, you know, tragically, I am looking at uh, friends of mine who are still consultants in emergency departments all around the country, and I'm 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 seeing all that indirectly, as as these friends and colleagues, you know, slip deeper deeper into conditions of burnout. So to go back to the military idea, I have become really convinced in the last few years that emergency physicians. In other words, those doctors who choose to work in the emergency department, the front line, like psychiatrists, like the police and like the army, they should have a tour of duty. The tour of duty idea should be a sort of a limited tenure at the very sharpest end, the pointiest end of healthcare. I don't think people should spend 30, 40 years, as I have done in an emergency department. It's just simply too traumatic. It's too taxing. So I think that Every doctor, every nurse should spend some time to see the general, the general effect and impact and you know, learn how to deal with crises. Um, dedicated nurses and doctors and physiotherapists uh, and other professionals who want to work in emergency care should do so, but they should not work for more than, say, 10 or 15 years at the very f- front line. And if they're going to work in emergency care, uh, the, there should be a, it's a, a bit like a, a, a field rotatory system, this idea that, you know, a field should lie fallow for a year or two, for example, in between sowing, you know, wheat or whatever. Similarly, uh, professional healthcare professionals who work at the front line should rotate around the busiest big hub trauma center right the way down to the small ambulatory local injury unit regularly in order to to have some respite from the extraordinarily intense, emotionally intense, physically intense, and above all, spiritually intense uh, action that they will will be guaranteed to experience in, in the busiest of all the departments. That's huge. And 
it's just it's after evoking even a thought in my mind about a memory i had and it's quite vivid i was i was working in a trauma and orthopedic ward and i was just coming in for the start of a shift and what i seen was a doctor who had been working on call on like was up reviewing bloods and they were falling asleep looking at the, the computer they're falling asleep looking at the hemoglobin levels the white blood cells so that's not optimal practice obviously but they've been sort of enforced to do this long shift and and to go through the the night and probably working quite extensively across the week as well why do you think there's an expectation within the occupation of healthcare or or anything in even in primary care that these are the norm and what to be expected even in logistics you see truck drivers with tachometers on the trucks where they have to take an enforced break to get some recovery yes there are some on-call beds and things in hospitals but they're rarely used why is it so normal for us to expect doctors, nurses to work extended hours, yet other professions like the bank clerk, the HR director, the hairdresser, if they were forced to experience that, it may be quite difficult for them to perform in their role? Well, it's, it's an absolutely crucial question, Kieran. I, I mean, I, I work with the, the Health Service Administration and I regularly, well, I, I used to regularly talk to politicians at that very, very highest level. And I, I said to them, guys, if you want to identify one particular point of pathology or, or dysfunction in the health system, it would be in the area of HR and human resource management. When I worked in Australia in the 80s, one of the things, I mean, aside from the fact that they had extraordinary, luxurious facilities, they had umpteen doctors were and nurses and physiotherapists in, in a beautiful brand new department in Queensland where I worked having come from the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, which in those days was regarded as the pinnacle of emergency medicine development, but was an old Victorian mm. Hogwarts-type building compared with the, the modern facility in, in Queensland that I came across in the, in the 1980s. Um, the thing, with, aside from the obvious resourcing that you see in places like Australia or in the private sector, is that doctors were involved at the highest level of hospital administration in Australia. And even as a doctor, you could, you could specialise in hospital administration and management, which I thought was a fascinating idea. You could do the equivalent of an MBA. And I think that the, the number one solution that I would put forward in terms of resolving the issues of working time, burnout, exhaustion, all that sort of stuff, is to put doctors at the very heart of the political, the civil service, the, 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 the HSE uh, management uh, of, of people. Because I sometimes think that there is a, there's a terrible animosity uh, in the political class towards uh, healthcare professionals. And, and I, I mean, I, I can only really speak about doctors, but I think that there is a terrible animosity towards consultants. And I think that comes down to a failure to appreciate their life. You know, the old Confucian thing, to hear is to forget, to see is to, uh, is, to, is to remember, but to do is to understand. It's an ancient Confucian idea. And I think that unless you've got people who have done this stuff, who've been there at the front line, who've worked 24 or 48 hours in a row, or have been around that kind of practice, you're, you're, you're going to have this detachment and it absolutely infuriates me. And, you know, I, I, I continue to work with the health service at the moment. And the one thing which is guaranteed to enrage me, I'm afraid, and I'm a very polite person normally, but I just see a, a red, you know, Roy Keane mist descends when I hear <laughs> managements from uh, managers and administrators and people from on high airily dismiss 
the HR issues at the front line. Errol dismissed the fact that they can't get this staff member or that staff member. Um, even though some of these problems that we've been hearing about, for example, in Kerry and Donegal, come down to the fact that they, they, they have been unable to recruit consultants and other people for up to 20, 30 years. And I, I, I don't need to explain to, to, to physiotherapy colleagues uh, how difficult it is to recruit extra physio. I mean, we had um, a, a pilot nearly 20 years ago of advanced physiotherapy practitioners in, in Cork, which was a, a, tri- a triumph in practice, but what, what was withdrawn after a year or two because of funding issues. So, you know, you know the, 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 the decisions made at the centre about funding um, may only look like, like uh, bits of arithmetic at the bottom of, of a spreadsheet to, to the people making those decisions. But at the front line, the, the impact can be, can be exhausting and incredibly disruptive. And it also causes a great deal of resentment and, and unhappiness among frontline staff. So I really wish there was a much better empathy. And I suppose that, that is the word I'm looking for. An empathy on the part of those who make the big, big decisions. An empathy with those who are implementing these decisions at the front line. It's brilliant. It's such a powerful message and really will resonate with a lot of people. So thanks for that, Chris. love to just pivot into a turn of phrase that as we open up your book and we see in the bio and the two of us actually had as the first question, but we, we wanted to dig deep on a few other topics, but describing yourself as a slightly militant altruist, would you unpack that for us? What does that mean? Um, I suppose it means that I come from a, a good Samaritan tradition. You know, I, I explained earlier that my mother uh, had a very, very powerful sense of social justice. She was an unmarried mother in Ireland in the 1950s. And from the 1970s onwards until she died a couple of years ago, she uh, she headed up, she was part of the leadership in a charity called Interaid, which provided housing for homeless mothers. So she was a, an activist uh, all her life. After experiencing her own difficulty, she, she became an activist. And she was an incredibly decent, honorable uh, uh, woman. And she imbued me, my life, with all those kind of uh, th- those sort of values, as did her own mother's experiences in the tenement. So I, I have a very strong empathy and sense of connection with the people of the inner city, uh, be that in, in, in St. James's, at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, the Royal Liverpool University Hospital, or the Mercy University Hospital in Cork, all of which were the, the inner city departments where I worked over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, I've always had this real, really intimate sense of, of connection with the people of the, the inner city, and going back, I suppose, to my own uh, mother and grandmother's uh, value system. Um, but having worked in the public health service, uh, I realized that you really do have to be fairly resilient and, uh, and I'm using resilient in, 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 in to, to, to signify not quite ruthless, but very, very tough because you will end up dealing with people who are ruthless, be they colleagues, be they politicians making decisions, be they managers, to whom you're, 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 you've gone looking for resources. Um, you know, you, you do really have to toughen up, and it's important to have a, 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 tough, a tough skin. But on the other hand, I'm a, I passionately, profoundly believe that 
in order to care, to really care, to really feel the pain of your patients, to, to empathize, you have to remain somewhat vulnerable. And, um, and, and, and for me, that lies at the heart of my rage when I think that the wonderful people in the emergency departments of these islands and, and around the globe, the, the wonderful people in, in Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, the wonderful missionary doctors, the wonderful people who go out on buses to the homeless in our cities, you know, the, the wonderful medics and nurses and, and other healthcare professionals who do that sort of stuff. Often they do that because they themselves have, have backstories with their own adverse childhood experiences or trauma. And they are harnessing their own vulnerability to look after the vulnerable. And I, I, it drives me, I, it really upsets me to see that vulnerability being exploited by perhaps slightly cynical managers or, or politicians or indeed colleagues, to be absolutely blunt and, and, and honest. So that's where the slightly militant comes in. I'm, I, I'm a profound believer in, in courtesy and charm and friendship and diplomacy and all that good stuff. And that's where I've invested most of my energies in, in life. But now and again, I go back to the, the original punk song uh, in the 1970s when I was a medical student. Anger is an energy. And sometimes you've got to get angry. And sometimes the sight of an elderly woman on a trolley in a, in a, in a, in a, in a dusty, dark, noisy corner by a door in a, in a stinking, smelly, hectic emergency department makes me very very angry and i i try to harness that anger to to make a difference and you know that's probably why i've i've reached for the pen as often as i've done in terms of highlighting what's going on in our emergency departments because quite honestly i often feel that if i didn't uh, politicians would be infinitely happier managers certainly would be infinitely happier if there was no noise coming from the emergency department and it just stayed like some kind of pressure cooker isolated and insulated from the rest of the hospital but of course it can't be the emergency department is part as i say earlier of, of a chain a circle of of of, of process of of, of connected uh, actions and it is part and parcel of of, of um, the hospital the institution and, and society as a whole so anyway uh, somewhere in there there's got to be periodic little bursts of anger to keep me going well, it's a very important message and delivered with flavor. So that's the most important thing um, and some great pieces in there. So thanks for that. Just looking back the last few years, obviously, you went back to work as a consultant in emergency medicine. You've had a lot going on in terms of your clinical, but also you've wrote a book, which is on its way to be a bestseller. We can imagine Life in Trauma with Gil Books. Um, fascinating read. So make sure to have a look, anyone who's interested. What's next for you? What's on the horizon for Dr. Chris Luke? Well, Kieran, I'm still crusading. I uh, m my big thing at the moment. I mean, I, I, I said earlier that if I could get, if I could change one thing in the mindset of decision makers, it would be to have more empathy for those who are trying to to provide care to the vulnerable and the needy in their hour of need. And 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 I keep saying, it's not car we're providing. It's, we're not building. We're not working in a car factory. We're working in a care factory. And if you can't care for the carers, we're in, we are in trouble. And I actually think it's the failure to care for the carers, the failure to, spe to specialize, to study, to reflect on what care means and how if you don't care for the carers, you, you, you shouldn't be surprised when it's hard to recruit such, such, such carers. 
But more recently, I've come to believe that we have to, A, try and divert people away from emergency departments so that society doesn't see emergency departments as, as the only portal of access to health provision, healthcare provision. So that there needs to be, you know, imaging access for physiotherapists, for example, advanced, advanced physiotherapy practitioners, general practitioners. There needs to be much better access to outpatient clinics. There must be much greater use of, of telemedicine and so forth. So we have to try and divert people away from emergency departments. And one of the other ways I used to, I used to try and reduce the workload uh, or at least reduce the, the number of people in the waiting room was by getting people to make appointments to, to see me directly. So, for example, if you had a, an injury on the beach on a Sunday evening, rather than rushing straight up to St. Vincent's or to CUH, that you actually uh, received the appropriate first aid or first aid advice on the phone and you made an appointment to see the advanced nurse practitioner, the advanced physiotherapy practitioner or the consultant uh, at a rapid access trauma clinic the next day or the day after. I'm convinced with, particularly with the experience of the pandemic and telemedicine, that that's got to be one of the big news, big steps forward in, in in the coming months. This idea that you could have that if you remember, many of you you will remember, particularly as physiotherapists, that surgery used to be uh, described, you know, humorously as uh, trauma by appointment. Um, I, I'm convinced that you can have an appointment for most trauma. Uh, you know, in other words very little trauma, in other words, very little of the injury that happens to people every day all over the world needs to rush straight to the operation theatre. Most of it will settle uh, with an appropriate wait and see policy with a bit of protection, ice, heat, rest, all that good stuff. Uh, and most of it could be managed uh, by appointment a day or two or three after it's happened. But aside from that, which is basically working in, in, in the emergency departments, I'm also on a bit of a crusade to try and, and, and encourage the development of, of self-care. Now, you know, that's not a new idea. People have been talking about the need to, to refine and encourage people to be self-caring uh, for, 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 for decades at this stage. So that's where I'm at at the moment. I'm convinced that we need to bring back the, the idea that was absolutely bread and butter uh, instinctive on the part of our grandmothers. You know, our grandmothers, who, who whether they applied arnica or gave you the hot toddy or got you to rub your sore leg after you'd fallen or, or got the Kleenex and, you know, kissed it and wiped your tears away, you know, huge amounts of daily mishaps and crises and so on can be managed by ourselves if we just remember that our grandmothers used to take this for, for granted. So I'm, I'm forever encouraging people to keep the right kind of medication, simple over-the-counter medication in their medicine cupboard, keep a basic stock of, of splints and band-aids and tissues uh, and so forth, to remember that the basic first aid is primarily rest, stop the game, shh, quiet down, give, give him some space, deep breath all around, bit of water, cover them with water, get him to drink the water, ice pack, examine, have a think, plan the response. That's, you know, for me is the response to, to, to most injuries. Um, and the same applies to things like, you know, you know, is this headache serious or do I really need to go to the emergency department with a headache uh, when it's probably a tension headache nine times out of ten? You know, do I really need to rush up to the busy packed waiting room in my local emergency department with um, a sore wrist that's not even swollen or bruised and so on and so forth. So I'm, 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 I'm busy 
on that little micro crusade, I've, you know, I've, I'm, I'm doing a bit of TV work. I'm doing a sort of column with one of the, the medical papers at the moment. And my, my, my big, my big agenda item is, is lecturing. I, I, I tour the country uh, and I talk to parent teachers associations around the country from, from Bandon to Dublin uh, about uh, what I call party medicine, which is basically keeping teenagers out of trouble uh, when it comes to, you know, first aid, um, uh, heading off to Lanzarote, EOS, you know, Magaluf, all these sort of parts and how to how to prepare their teenagers for that, which in, in a sense is is indirectly preparing them for Harcourt Street or, you know, downtown, any any any, any town you need to be here to, ma- to, 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 to name. In other words, you know, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, because, you know, everybody should know about that. Definitely. Yeah, moving things away from anything and everything department and self-care, brilliant, because we couldn't agree more. Yeah. Having touched on all those fundamentals that are absolutely crucial for us to perform a little bit better, Dr. Chris Luke, the last question we have, and we ask everyone that comes on, is bringing this all together, what does high performance mean to you? For me, high performance is the pursuit of excellence in whatever you do. In in healthcare, it means being obsessed with the response of your patients, of your colleagues, and of the citizenry to, to, to what you do. And that starts with a, an obsession uh, with, 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 with the patients, uh, basic their appraisal of your work uh, and whether you're making them happy. I mean, my, my simple metric, uh, as I try to communicate it to my nursing staff, to my doctors, the students, is, you know, most of my patients come in grim-faced, pale, sweating, sometimes tearful, and frightened and anxious. And for me, the, the measure of success when they leave the emergency department in either direction is that they're sitting upright in a chair or a trolley or they're walking out with a smile on their face and that there's time for banter. They're back, they have a nice, normal pink face. They're able to laugh or to, to titter at, at, at that bit of banter or they're comfortable and they are saying, thank you, doc, or thank you, nurse, uh, in a way that you know they really, really mean. And they really, really mean it because you've, you've had a bullseye in terms of the care you provided, in terms of the empathy you've evinced, in terms of the, the relationship that you've established for that five minutes, that 15 minutes, or heaven help us sometimes for that 10 or 12 hours in the emergency department. So ultimately, it comes down to trying in healthcare to make every single relationship, no matter how brief, uh, as, as, as powerfully effective and therapeutic and beneficial as you possibly can. Dr. Chris, thank you very much for, for sharing your story and sharing an awful lot of wisdom, a lot of the simple things that make the difference. So wishing you the very best with your crusades and thanks for spending the time with us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.